I see on your website, Aaron Templer, T-E-M-P-L-E-R.com, that you have a book that I believe is in process right now. It's out, actually. It's finished. It's out. It's on, uh, you know, Amazon and Kobo and Barnes and Noble and Google and Apple. It's on all the places. Let's talk about it right now. I mean, it's called Leading in a Social World. Stop social media marketing and build social capital instead. That sounds kind of interesting to me because capital has a number of meanings. And I'm guessing you mean probably several different layers of capital when you say that. Am I right in that? Yeah, I think we're kind of, I try to zero in on social capital specifically as it is measured and used in businesses and organizations. So social capital is a pretty broad term that's used in, you know, societies and church groups. And there's even financial social capital investing now. But, you know, the original intent of of social capital is the value that's exchanged through durable social relationships, right? So the trust that's built, the efficiency of action and knowledge transfer, and the access to privileged networks and other sorts of information and influence, which I think is kind of the myopic focus of social media marketers. But yeah, that's the the term social capital I'm, I'm using in, this, in that sense. And we spend time kind of defining it, making sure that everybody knows kind of where we're oriented in the book. Well, I, I like when you said the word durable, I kind of laughed because obviously in finance, investment and Wall Street and all that stuff, durable goods are a big thing. But I've never heard that kind of equation that a relationship that you create via social media could be and should be valued as a durable good. Is that the argument you're making? Pretty close. Yeah, I think the main argument that I make, first of all, is that marketing in social constructs is largely a fool's errand. And there's lots of data and neuroscience to sort of support why I think that that social media marketing in, in large part doesn't work and why it runs into friction to the way that that social groups actually work. But the idea of a durable social relationship is important to recognize when you're when leaders think about, okay, how do I build and use social groups to, to move my efforts forward? It really doesn't matter that you've made a bunch of connections. That's kind of the infrastructure of a, of a social network. But once they actually start delivering value through those relationships, then it becomes something of value. So that's what we that's what the scientists anyway, and it's sort of a term that I've adopted mean by durable. Uh, social uh, social goods, if you will, to use your term. But it's, yeah, it's reciprocity, it's trust, and it can be measured and managed just like any other kind of capital in an organization, human capital, intellectual capital, physical capital. Wow. So you're really making the argument that this needs to be something that's measured, something that's developed and uh, nurtured over time and protected. I would say protected is probably one of the big ones as well. That's interesting because I think a lot of companies, a lot of individuals even, look at social media as, I don't know, maybe a little bit of snake oil, a little bit of a flitting butterfly, uh, you know, it's, it's ephemeral, it, it doesn't really matter. And I think it matters a lot because social channels are a great way to demonstrate who you are, what you do, and how you do it. And it's a great way to build and reinforce those durable relationships. But I don't think a lot of people look at it that way, which is, oh, yeah, I'm creating relationships, but my goal is to create and make them more durable 
sustainable just over time. I don't know if I'm making sense in what I'm saying, yeah. but it, yeah. it, it's, it's, a, it's a mind shift. And it, it's related to the fact that normally when I talk to people about social media, it's in the realm of psychology and sociology, but kind of in the pop versions of it. And you're tying it, I think, down to more metrics, more measurable, more, I'll use the word durable, aspects. Am I understanding you correctly? Yeah, no, I think you're onto something for sure. I would say that the real challenge that I'm putting forth in the book is to stop thinking about social media and these social constructs that gather on the social web like a marketer and start thinking about them as you would a leader. So marketers tend to look for opportunities of conversion and leaders look for opportunities for connection. A marketer has this relationship between a brand and a customer and wants to sort of find ways to move them through a funnel, generate awareness, kind of use them for the brand's good, goods or purposes, I suppose. A leader looks to people build to generate value within the social group, recognizes that the social group has agency of its own, its own norms, its own way of, of acting and behaving. And that changes actually over time, like any kind of networking group that you might be a part of, you know that it shifts, right? It's more, much more like a murmuration of starlings than it is any kind of you know traditional audience or market segment that we think of as marketers. So that's the real challenge in the book. Try to, try to you know, strip away your biases of how you've approached social media as a marketer. And here's a bunch of tools that leaders use. I mean, we know how to build social capital if you look at it through the lens of, of leadership. And I, I, that's the challenge. Stop thinking about it as a marketer and start thinking about it as a, as a leader might. This episode of the Nonfiction Brand Podcast is brought to you by my new book, Nonfiction Brand. Discover, craft, and communicate the completely true, completely you brand you already are, now available on Amazon.com. Jay Baer, best-selling author of Talk Triggers, said, The book is outstanding. Highly recommended. A spectacularly useful guide to personal branding that pulls off the difficult trick of being both realistic and inspirational. A must-read, regardless of where you are in your own brand-building journey. To get your copy, head on over to Amazon.com and search Nonfiction Brand. And let's get you all the credit you deserve for the completely true, completely you brand you already are. Can you give me an example of a marketing mindset versus a leadership mindset when it comes to what you were just discussing? Sure. Yeah. I think one of the things that I, that I just mentioned is this idea that we look at as marketers, we tend to see a bunch of eyeballs, an audience or a channel on, so, on the social web, whether it's social media or some user group or whatever we're, we're speaking of, let's, let's call it social media. And that audience then is to be converted and used for our purposes. Whereas a leader will look at a social group and say, in order to sort of integrate into that group, I need to democratize the relationship. I need to understand their needs. I'll do a lot of listening and I'll see myself as a member in a position of responsibility perhaps, but really no more or less important than the group itself. And I look to lead them based on their needs, not on necessarily mine. There's a lot more specifics that we could go into if you want to, but that's kind of the basic approach. So. An example might be brands that, that kind of conjure these, these ratios. I'm sure you've heard them before where you say, you know, 60% value-added content gives you the right to promote 40% of the time or something. You sort of hear these a lot. Whereas we take a look at a brand like Ann Taylor, who in a case study 
listen to their to their customers who were complaining about a model that they used actually in, in one of their photos is not representative of of kind of the, the target market that, that they believe to be themselves, right? They listened to them and actually created a solution where they took pictures of, or they ordered this, you know, this is kind of a convoluted, I, I started this case study wrong, DP, I'm sorry. No, that's um, okay. I, I realize I kind of talked myself in the corner, but there, that's a case study of, of an example of somebody that that is kind of acting like a leader as opposed to trying to use people in, in, the, in the social construct. Right, so what I'm hearing you say is that in spite of the fact that push-pull marketing has been around, that, that concept's been around forever, and but, but it's still a lot of people use, especially in social media, it's still a, I'm shoving stuff at you, rather than allowing the audience to become the ones who are, are, are literally pulling stuff out of you that they want. Uh, so you're kind of, like if you were a, a zero-sum leader, if that's the way you think, you're saying give away some of your power, literally empower your audience. Can you give me an example of that in action? Yeah, you bet. I think that that's, that's good. That's, that's right. You've got it. Part of the way a leader knows how to build social capital in these social constructs is to democratize the relationship, give up power, if you will, and, and really think about influence without power, which by the way, and I'll, I'll get to your question a little bit later. Any leader worth their salt knows that's the that's the how you lead, right? I mean, the real power in a, in a leader constituent relationship lies within the constituent, right? Mm -hmm. if, if we don't want to follow, we can just simply stop following. So that's where the power lies, and so leaders spend a lot of time thinking about how to influence without power. So I talked to Zappos as a, as a specific example and some of their customer care team, that, and they use social media in, in very groundbreaking ways and always have. They see themselves in, as in service to the folks that are on social media. The way they put it to me was, you know, we didn't invent the phone, but we picked it up when people called us. So they're coming to their, their customers as opposed to asking customers to come to them. They see social media as an opportunity to do two things. One, solve problems, and that requires a lot of listening, a lot of asking questions, and a lot of that, again, flattening of the relationship to honor what they're bringing to the table as much as the, the brand thinks that they're bringing to the table. And then the second thing they do is they believe that their culture, their internal culture that they've built at Zappos, connects with people in such a way that it creates this sort of loyalty and brand advocacy. They don't use those terms. Um, but they really just believe that it builds deeper connections if they show who they are. So they literally just kind of cracked open the corporate, you know, veil, if you will, to use kind of a gender normative term, I guess. And they invite people in. They're just super transparent about who they are and they just share a lot of their company stories to make those connections. So again, they're looking for opportunities for connection, not for conversion. And they're looking to democratize a relationship and come together to solve problems at the customer's sort of level. So you see a lot of that actually in the rise in value that has been going on now for quite some time around social media used as a, as a customer care tool, because customer care is a great fit in everything we're talking about. And it matches with the way that you build social capital, democratize the relationship. You've got this relationship built on reciprocity, right? Like I've created value for you. Now I need to solve a problem for you. We'll come together and figure that out requires a lot of listening, a lot of coaching, and the end goal is to make this person whole. It's a people building exercise as opposed to a people using one. 
So you're starting to see customer care really rise to the top as, a, as an excellent way for companies and brands to build a lot of value on social media. Does that answer your question? I hope I... Yeah, I, yeah, I, it, it really does, because I think it hits on a, a couple of different levels. We've talked about this from a corporate level. Of course, uh, many of the listeners of the Nonfiction Brand Podcast are interested in, in personal branding and creating durable relationships with their potential networks, uh, clients, you name it, whatever you want to call the, the people who are recipients of your social media largesse. They definitely want to do that. And what I want to make sure we do is make the connection, which is when I hear what you talk about democratization, another word I would use that's perhaps more uh, usable in the personal branding space is vulnerability or being, and especially the listening part as well inviting opportunities to listen, to be vulnerable, to give up some of the perceived power of the old, I'm shoving stuff at you marketing and make it much more of a, I want to pull from you so that I can deliver truly what you need. An example of what I think you're talking about, I'm a big fan of REI, Recreational Equipment Incorporated, been a member since I was in seventh grade, I think. Nice, and yeah. uh, my number is 527028. So it's even under a million. I just wanted to point that out. I almost made the first 500,000. And every time I go into REI and, and they ask me, oh, let me look up your number, I'd go 527028. <laughs> and they go, oh, you've got a low one. And I go, yeah, baby. Yeah, that's how, that's how much a member of their social group I am. Yeah. But what I really always appreciated about them was if you walk in to any of their retail stores, you'll be greeted by someone and they'll ask you, can I help you? But many of them will say, what adventure are you looking for today? You know, and if you say kayaks, they'll go, great. Jack is our kayak expert. I'm going to take you over to meet Jack. And the vulnerability there is the person isn't saying, I don't know anything about kayaks. What they're doing is they're saying, I'm going to pass you off to the person who is the expert because I'm okay with not being the expert in everything in this place. Right. Most sporting goods stores would never do that for their associates. They would train them to be all things to everybody and try to sell whatever is on sale because we got too many of them in the back. Mm -hmm. And it, it's a different mindset. And I bring up REI again because a number of years ago, they had a new CEO come in and he went on Reddit for an AMA, Ask Me Anything which really stands for annihilate my ass because anytime a CEO goes on Reddit, they just get slaughtered right. and, and it happened to, to him and uh, fully 10% of the comments were from former employees, former and current REI employees, all griping about the same thing, which was the upper level have been telling the associates to sell memberships and they were measured on how many memberships they sold. And you had comments from people saying things like, I've worked here for 10 years. I've gotten nothing but the best ratings across the board. The only thing I wasn't good at is forcing people to buy something they didn't want. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's the old what's measured gets managed. REI was measuring memberships when they should have been measuring something a whole lot different. Well, that's an example of a culture talking back internally to try to, I think, do what you're talking about, which is we're violating our social contract with the social capital we've developed. We're violating that. We need to get back to serving 
that social capital. We need to get back to making those durable relationships even more durable. Is this making sense to you? Oh, yeah. Uh, no, I, I really like where, where your head's at with that. I think, I think it ties directly into a lot of the things we looked at in the book. If I can give another shot to this Ann Taylor example, because I think it's a good one to, to tie it into social media specifically. Ann Taylor's a brand obviously known for sort of the everyday working woman. They really work hard to, to maintain that brand image. And they put a picture of a, of a cargo pant on a sort of typically, you know, sort of one of those very thin models that are, that you see a lot that Ann Taylor doesn't often use. And this kind of caught the attention of a lot of their user, a lot of their customers. And they started, you know, complaining like, what well, you know, this is not who you are. Why these pants would not look good on, you know, all the different kinds of body types that you serve. And it kind of caught the attention of some of these industry watchdogs that, that keep an eye on, you know, how the fashion industry portrays, you know, women's bodies and so on. It sort of caught fire and the attention of people like you and I that like to see how these things kind of get resolved. Right. 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 And so the managers of this, of these social communities offered not so much an apology, but a remedy. And they said, we hear you. First of all, they were listening. They, and they said, that makes sense. What we'll do is we'll order in these pants and all of the sizes of the women that work here. And we'll take pictures of them wearing the pants and you can decide for yourselves. And that's exactly what they did. Total flattening of the relationship. Let's come together. Let's figure this out. I honor what it is that you're, you're telling us. I'm not getting defensive about it. And then they let the conversation flourish where people still hated the pants and they, and they you know, talked negatively about the product itself, but then praised Ann Taylor for taking the steps that they took. So that's another kind of really simple example of how you can do what you're doing with, with REI, which by the way, you know, when you kind of let cracks in, your, in yourself, that's how you build really deep relationships, right? There's this, I don't know if you listen to any Leonard Cohen, he's a wonderful lyricist that I just admire a lot, where he says the, the cracks are where the light gets in, right? This is what makes us human. And it's what makes brands relatable too. And, and that's important because if I can take a quick tangent, when we decide to sign up for social groups, like a networking group, let's say the AMA Madison, people, because we shared that experience, people sign up for the AMA Madison, but they don't exactly know what they're getting. It's a really unknown time horizon of when they might receive something back as they volunteer and give to the organization. They don't even know if they will get anything back. They don't know what it'll look like. So social scientists have studied this phenomenon how and why we were, are willing to give up agency to join these kinds of groups with, with no sort of promise for return. And what we find is that, first of all, we're just wired, what they found, I should say, we're just wired to be social. So we're sort of drawn to the, these kinds of relationships and we just sort of innately think that they will be valuable to us. But we require what they call a conceptual apparatus in order to join it, right? So we know what AMA Madison will bring us, promise of uh, career advancement or leads for, for our agencies or whatever that looks like. And without building that conceptual apparatus and the credibility to deliver on it, AMA Madison wouldn't be able to attract people to, to join their, their organization. So that's what those cracks are. You're setting up this is who I am. This is the kind of leader I am. This is the type of brand we are. This is our, as Zappos likes to talk about, this is our culture that we want you to see. And you create that conceptual apparatus, that reason to connect to something that, that you don't necessarily know what you're going to get in return from. So it's critical. So all of the, all the things you talk about really resonate with me. What's really interesting is this is where I can connect it directly to what we talk about so much on this podcast 
If you're a regular listener, you've heard me say that personal branding is nothing more than showing people who you are, what you do, and how you do it, and demonstrate it consistently over time and build that relationship. So everything you've just talked about kind of on a business or corporate level applies all the way down. It's turtles all the way down. What's above is the same below or whatever. But it's all true, which is if you want, one, sales is about transaction, but branding is about relationship. The stronger you can make that relationship, the longer you have it, the more sales transactions you will have. I mean, and you don't have to be selling stuff. It could be just engagements with other people. It's all the same stuff. And so I'm really excited to be talking to Aaron Templer today, and he's going to be back next week. So don't worry about that. We're going to get more into his book and more into the ideas behind his agency. Are you located in Denver? I am. Yep. I'm an old Denver guy, so I'll be interested in hearing more about that next week. For now, Aaron, if people wanted to get in touch with you, how can they do that? AaronTempler.com. And it's E-R, by the way. A lot of people who've read, you know, what's the book that Tom Hanks was in the movie of? I always forget the name of that. Oh, yeah. The Dan Brown books, uh, Da Vinci Code, yeah, stuff like da that. Da Vinci Code. There, people suddenly became aware of the Knights of Templar, which is an A-R. So it's, it's Aaron Templer with an E-R. I'm not on any kind of crusade, but yeah, you can find me, my agency, and my book, Leading in a Social World, at Aaron, A-A-R-O-N, Templar.com. All right, so check that out. And as I say, Aaron's going to be back next week, but that's it for this week. I'm DP Knutin, your host, of course, and I would love for you to like, subscribe, refer, and review this podcast, because that really helps other people find it. And he is... Aaron Templer. And we'll be talking at you again next week. Bye-bye.